host, Aaron Rittmaster. Uh, this is Diz Dad's podcast number 594 for Sunday, August 4th, uh, 2008. 2008, wait. Huh? Wait a second. Hello, I'm your host, Aaron Rittmaster. This is... I swear I didn't fall asleep. I, I was just resting my eyes waiting for everybody to get online. What the heck? All right. Hello, I'm your host, Aaron Rittmaster. This is Diz Dad's podcast number 594 for Sunday, August 4th, 2019. Tonight, I'm joined in the man cave by Eric Anderson. Hey, folks. James Cameron. Hey, how you doing? And Roy David. About time you woke up. I guess. I mean, a lot's happened since the last time we gathered here in the studio. Um I guess uh, maybe it would be a good idea to start by kind of catching up on some significant things that have been happening while uh, apparently I was uh, napping. But hey, before we jump into that discussion, I do still need to thank our podcast sponsor, Fantastic Memories Travel, and its Mouse Master Travel Group. The Mouse Master Travel Group focuses on Disney destination vacations, and Mouse Master agents would love to take care of the stressful parts of vacation planning so that you can focus on the fun. You can check them out at mousemastertravel.com. After a long hiatus like that, we decided it wasn't enough to just come back and offer you the same things that we've been offering for the last 500 plus episodes. So today we're going to introduce a new segment that will appear hopefully weekly, but if not pretty close to it. And uh, I bring you Don Donfris's Disney History Moment. Hi, Disney Ohana. This is Don Donfris with your favorite segment. This week in Disney history. Today, for the week of August 4th. In 1995, Disney breaks ground on Animal Kingdom, the brainchild of Joe Rohde. When Joe presented the idea for Animal Kingdom, he brought in a 400-pound Bengal tiger. To make Animal Kingdom as authentic as possible, Imagineers collected seeds from 37 countries to use for plants and grasses. Over 4 million cubic yards of dirt were moved, and 40,000 mature trees were planted. Animal Kingdom opened on April 22, 1998. Other noteworthy moments in Disney history this week. On August 5, 1992, Walt Disney World welcomes in its 400 millionth guest, Brandon Adams. He and his family were given lifetime passes to all Disney parks worldwide. And on August 9, 2004, Donald Duck receives a star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. Till next week, this is Don Donfers with This Week in Disney History. Thank you, Don. I can't wait to hear what you have for us next week. All right, guys. Uh, so thanks again for humoring me and for uh, sticking around. And thank you to our listeners who are still tuning in. Um, we have been away for almost a year. And... Uh, there is a lot that's going on. So we thought we'd start with some of the more significant things that have happened while we've been away because, hey, you know, we can't miss our chance to comment on those. So I wanted to start with some big picture stuff. And it seems to me that the the biggest item that 
had gotten a lot of attention and that we really didn't get a chance to talk about much on the show was this move at Walt Disney World almost exactly a year ago to uh, dynamic ticket pricing. The The whole system has changed and um, ticket prices are variable based on when you're going to start using that ticket. Uh, and the expiration dates change and all of that. Um, and I wanted to start with just some reactions to um, you know, now that we've kind of been working with this system for a little while, we, what people think about it, what are your reactions having seen it in practice for a little bit to this date-based uh, ticket pricing? I, I don't know, James, you know, you, you've kind of seen this on, from both sides, right? From back in the days in the college program. And now, you know, as a guest, how, how uh, different really in practice does it make Walt Disney World travel to be dealing with date-based tickets? You know, for us, I was expecting it to be like a huge change. And for the one trip that we took um, since it went to effect and with our upcoming trip, which purchase, uh, purchasing our tickets, really for us, it didn't make that much of a difference. I think the biggest difference was just having um, having to use your your days within a certain time frame, which, is, which seems shorter when you're only getting like a four-day ticket and you have like about seven days or so to use them. Right. Right. So I think that was, you know, like, so planning out, like maybe our, you know, like, you know, with this upcoming trip, we wanted to do universal and Disney and, and just so making sure that, you know, we, we couldn't have done it where we did a couple of days at Disney and then went over and then came back without, you know, having it be really tight. So purchasing the tickets and making sure that our, our start date for our tickets was, after the universal portion makes more sense and gave us the flexibility to to have all our days um, in there. So it, um, but the pricing, it you know we, our days were set as like if you're a family that's traveling the same time of year, um, you know, every every year, and so your days are pretty much set, then you're gonna find that like maybe if you set your dates like from like one day to the next, you might save a dollar. Or two dollars on your tickets, um, but other than that, it's not really going to be that big. If you're going, I think the biggest change is going to be for people who like to travel during the holidays and those yeah. peak times. They're going to really see the hit. Yeah, I mean, uh, Eric or Roy, either of you have anything you want to add to the whole issue of date-based tickets? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, just planning out trips now. Ever since that dynamic pricing phenomenon started i don't know if it's really had any effect on our on our planning um you know but you know we think about so many other things about what to prepare for dining reservations fast passes what's opening what's not uh ticket prices just happen to be something you have to deal with you know um and you're right unless you're going to go on like a major major holiday um you know I, i don't know if it's really had the effect that that i think disney wanted which is to try to disperse the crowds a little bit and try to get people to to go and you know I guess less attended times of the year just to even out the spacing. But for me and for my family, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. All right. So Eric, are you of a mind with uh, you know James and Roy? Is it not really having any impact on on your planning and and uh, you know really mostly irrelevant? I guess is the the impression I'm getting. Well, the dynamic pricing is. Uh, kind of relevant for me because i have been doing annual passes however those got a huge hike too right uh, especially here. the most recent one 
yeah, the, the most recent one is, uh, is going to be quite a hit, but, um, I think again, Disney's trying to even out when people are coming to the parks and this is just another lever that they can pull to do that, um, with the, the ticket prices tied to you know, specific dates. Well, and what I think is interesting is that, that, you know, both James and Roy felt like it didn't really have any impact on them. But, uh, I was just listening, uh, earlier this week to, uh, uh, Jim Hill and, and Len Testa talking about some sort of analytics of the actual, you know, crowd flows over the last year since they've imposed these new date-based tickets. And it really, the the impression I got from their conversation is that the data suggests it's doing what Disney intended. Um, you know, that, that what's happening is there's been a more uh, sort of a leveling effect on crowd levels. Um, and that it's enough that if you look at the you know, the most recent price increases, although, you know, and this was, we're talking now just about a week ago, um, you know, the annual price or annual pass prices jumped significantly, but the average price increase for, you know, regular tickets was about 2.2%. So right at the rate of inflation and what they, what they did, however, do is, like dice the the kinds of or the the shades of pricing just a little bit more finely so instead of you know five categories of pricing there's now like nine categories or something like that right um and and almost all the ticket prices you know just bumped up that that price of inflation amount the ones that went up more are those times and it's it's interesting to me they're the times that probably eight years ago we were all saying are the slow times at Walt Disney World. But now that they're catching up, they're the ones that saw the big price bump, right? So, um, you know, October got significant price increases. Um, August uh, got significant price increases because those times that several years ago were slow times have caught up. That also suggests to me that there there may be a ceiling that Disney's seeing it's with the prices. Point. That that they're starting to to sort of reach the point at which there's no you know the, the guest elasticity isn't there. They're not coming back at the higher price. Yeah, they're boosting the the, the cheapest rates to get more revenue in. Right, right. Although although there are still you know some of the cheapest rates stayed stable. Right. So, um, you know, the September stayed low and actually had a smaller rate of increase, even though it was already low. Hmm. So, but, but I think, I mean, I, I think there's a certain amount of what to, to what you're saying there, Eric, because, you know, that, that was the goal, right? I mean, th- th- that's the equilibrium Disney's been fighting for. The question then is going to become over the next year or two, if they've, if indeed they've started to reach that equilibrium, it's going to be, what does that then impact? How does that impact the guest experience, right? Um, you know, what is more consistently just above average crowd levels have on us as opposed to peaks and valleys? I guess one of the questions I would ask would be, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? You take a, you take a, a time of the year that was traditionally a very slow period, which is right around, let's say, October, right? Yeah. But now with the enormous popularity of the Food and Wine Festival, 
Um, you know, I'm wondering, you know, like we talked about levers and how Disney's trying to even out the, uh, you know, dispersal of populations around the park. I'm wondering, you know, how many, how many people are actually being attracted to the parks on a quote-unquote slow time of the year, yet are being held back because of the pricing of the tickets? You know what I mean? I guess, again, the question is, what's more important? You know, is it, is it the fact that you want to go at a time where it used to be historically uh, inexpensive, or do you really want to catch those, those, uh, those specific events that only happen during certain times of the year? And I think we're going to go into that a little bit. We talk about some other things like the hard ticket events, but right. Well, you know, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's exactly where I was headed next. Which is yeah. the other thing that I think has has been a big picture, major impact at Walt Disney World is that, and and we did start talking about these um, in in that last set of shows we did before our break. You know, we we had talked a couple of times about some of these um, uh, special event one off kinds of things, right? Because you know, we'd, we'd all gotten used to Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party, Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. You know, those are really sort of entrenched in the in the Walt Disney World calendar these days. Um, but we, what we started to see were these sort of one-off events. So they added the, the villain soiree to Mickey's Not-So-Scary. They added, um, you know, those, those little the, – there was a, um, a special villains event after hours at Hollywood Studios one night that we talked about. And over the last year, what we've seen are these regularly occurring morning, special early morning hours in all the parks and in some of the parks, evening special events um, as separately ticketed events. So has have any of you attended any of these um, hard ticket, not parties, but just you know, late night admissions or early morning admissions. I did Moonlight Magic, but that was not a, that was a, you know, DVC. So there's no charge for it. There was just a limited amount of um, capacity for it. Right, right. Yeah, we did do that last year. And then we, we just signed up to do it again on our next trip. And that process of, you know, going online and, you know, and queuing for uh, with everybody else to try and get what the whatever tickets were available was a little nerve wracking. Yeah, and it seems that that event at least mirrors the way that they're handling capacity for the events that are hard ticketed, right? Because um, that seems to be the big difference between these hard ticket events and the the party events is that some might even say that this is a return to, you know, the expected crowd levels from the parties when they first started doing the parties. I mean, <laughs> you know, once upon a time, that was the point of, of going to Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween Party or Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. But as, as, the, as, as the crowd that they sell tickets to for those parties has grown, um, you know, more and more people will, I hear from people say, you know, we go ahead and go to the party, but we go for the special offerings and things like that, not so much for the lower crowd level. That's true. Although I would, I would have to point out that if you're going to the for the rides, then you have no the, the crowds are not an issue. Good point. So if you're going, you know, to a party and you because you want lower crowd, lower short lines for the rides, you you've got it made. The the lines and the crowds are, are for those special opportunities that are only during the party for the characters, for the rare characters, for the shows and whatnot. 
So we've we've always, you know, had sort of a, a running debate on the show here about these kinds of events. Um, you know, there's always the folks who say these these events are nothing but a money grab from Disney. You know, we're we're afraid that this is going to become a substitute for extra magic hours, that something that used to be a regular free guest benefit is now going to be this extra cost element. Then we've got other people who say, well, you know, this doesn't take away from what a regular paying guest would normally receive. It's just a bonus that if you want to pay for it, you can pay for something extra. So now that we've had these regular, uh, let's just call them after hours events or before hours events, but you know, bonus hours events that are, are paid tickets going on for about a year. Um, you know, what, what's your reaction to, you know, these, these particular events, not, not the Christmas party and the Halloween party at this point, but just these specially hard ticketed, you know, three extra hours in the morning or in the, in the evening. Um, you know, I guess it all depends on, on the type of touring you want to do. I mean, when it was just my wife and I, um, you know, the, and this kind of event would have been available, it would be something we would be very much interested in. But to be honest with you, you know, with a with a two year old and a nine month old, you know, the idea of getting up to get on Dumbo at seven a.m. To be honest with you, I don't know if that's really going to appeal to me all that much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. Um, and then on the flip side of that, there's you know, I can't see keeping my kids out that late. I mean, I just don't know if they, if they would be up for it, it would, it would be great, but I just don't, I just don't see it happening. Sure. You know, and I did moonlight, Ma- I'm, I'm signed up for moonlight magic as well, but again, uh, my next trip, I've got 13 people going. It's all my, my wife's family. And I just, with five, with five little kids in that inner person there, I, I don't know if that's going to be that much of a draw. And, and I agree. You know what? I, I kind of agree. I think, you know, the last time I went to Mickey's not so scary, you know, we kind of planned it where we went to that party on our first night of the trip and we substituted, you know, a day's park admission to, you know, to instead of just pay for the, pay for the ticket to get into the park for the party. Right. Um, back then it made a little bit more economical sense, but you know, with some of the prices that you're seeing now for, for these parties, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily the case anymore. So. Right. Right. Well, I mean, Eric, your kids are older now. Um, is is an extra hours with lower crowds a value for you, or is it an annoyance because it feels like something that you ought to be getting for free? I can absolutely see the argument that it would be great to get it for free, but if it's for free, then I don't think you're necessarily eliminating the crowds, and that has a big draw for me. I didn't pay for it, but I had very seriously thinking about doing this for uh Hollywood Studios back in January just because I couldn't get a fast pass for you know, Slinky Dog Dash to save my life. Um, so, you know, being able to get there and even if it's, you know, six in the morning uh, to get on uh, and ride a ride that you're not going to have a chance to ride without a multi-hour wait otherwise, I think has a huge benefit and might be worth the, the money that you're going to splash out for it in some cases. Right. So, so this is the point that to me is, is really the, the core question here. And James, I'm going to turn around and throw this at you. You know, if, if this, these, these party events are the alternative to 
what everybody was afraid was coming, which was pay to play fast pass. Right. If 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 this is the alternative, is if this is the way that we're going to allow people who are willing to to pay the extra money to make sure that they get the opportunity to do that thing that they would have paid for fast passes to do, is this preferable to a paid fast pass system? I think it's definitely preferable. I think if you want to um, incentivize people to to spend money. Um, in a way that it doesn't impact everyone else's experience for the most part, then I think that's definitely preferable to then, you know, charging everybody for fast passes, which is what the fear has always been. Right. Um, so, I mean, cause we've considered it. Um, I think, I think when we were looking at, uh, you know, some of our, you know, our past trip and maybe this upcoming trip, we were, you know, there was a thought that, Hey, like if there's one of these early morning, um, opportunities, then maybe we should take advantage of it, especially for Hollywood Studios, where we want to get in and we want to make sure that we get on Slinky Dog Dash and and uh, and get to ride that maybe multiple times because it's, you know that would be you know that would make for a great trip. Right. Um, otherwise, you know, if you can't get Fast Pass, and I think that's something that you know, like the the advent of the of the fab of the Fast Pass and the way it's you know it works now. Um, with everybody getting online and, and having such difficulty with certain attractions, I think Disney is smart to give people another way to guarantee themselves a better guest experience, which I think is you know, ultimately what they're looking for. Right, right. Well, so I, I don't know that we have an answer to this, but I think that it changes the debate at least. Um, and I think that we're going to continue to see these events and, and more of this interplay back and forth between access to attractions and special events and sort of trying to find the right balance um, because it's only going to get to be a bigger issue as, you know, Galaxy's Edge opening is, is imminent here on the horizon. Um, so I... I you know, that whole practice of, of, you know, having to get up and, and make those fast pass reservations and sometimes being able to get them and sometimes not, boy, you think it might actually drive you to drink. Good thing that they've made it a little easier for you. Uh, because one of the other things that happened right as we were uh, sort of going on our hiatus was that uh, they were adding booze to the dining plans. Um, now you can choose an alcoholic beverage for your included beverage with a meal. Um, and it's had some some spin-off effects in in a lot of different ways. Um, so uh, I don't know, Eric, maybe you can pick us up here with you know what you perceive at least as the the biggest impact of um, the addition of of alcohol to dining plan entitlements. Well, I think it's going to make them more attractive to a certain uh, segment of the uh, population. Uh, you've got. Uh, Parents, where they're traveling alone or with kids who uh, might need a drink um, <laughs> to get through the day. Um, I, if for me, the the dining plan has never really been a good value proposition, but uh, the addition of you know pricier beverages onto the plan uh, do move the needle a little, a little bit. So I think uh, for, like I said, for you know, parents who are going to be dealing with children and crowds and uh, all that, they're going to appreciate uh, being able to get an alcoholic beverage just included with the plan. Uh, plenty of folks who are 
uh, not in that circumstance or uh, just there as you know, single folks are uh, going to be able to use that. Uh, at, at, like I said, it just ups the value proposition of the dining plan overall. Right. And, and you know, I mean, it always seemed to me that the the concern about you know bringing alcohol into the parks more uh you know having having a big negative impact on guest experience was was a little overblown and and i think that now that this has been out there for a year or so we can say pretty definitively that you know it hasn't really moved the needle i mean the the craziness that sometimes hits epcot during food and wine festival isn't any different it's, it's the same amount of craziness, yes. Yeah, and and I don't think that we've seen a perceptible change in in guest behavior overall in in Magic Kingdom, which is whatever you know what what seemed to be the the place that people were most concerned about, right? Because once they added alcoholic beverages to the dining plans, that also meant that we we got broader distribution of of um, you know alcoholic beverage availability in Magic Kingdom overall. Yeah, and I'd also say that it, at least with this move, you know that people are actually eating food to go along with their alcohol. So, you know, right. that might be lessening the effects, making it a uh, a little less of a you know drink around the world type situation. Yeah, it would get very expensive to try to you know eat and drink your way around Magic Kingdom. Exactly. Uh, so, James or Roy, either of you you know, find the, the dining plan to be a better value now that, uh, uh, alcoholic beverages are included. Um, to be honest with you with this upcoming trip with the, with the acknowledgement that they are, that alcohol is a part of the, the dining plan. Now, this was the first time we seriously considered it. Um, especially with a group as large as we are you now, we were really just debating, you know, would it just be easier if we just prepaid everything and be done with it? Sure. Um, uh, but, but I'm going to be honest with you. You know, the first question that my uh, that my brother-in-law asks is one drink. That's it. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure if that's going to be enough. So, so, uh, and so we actually did some we did some research. We we caused you know we priced it out and we tried to price it out versus the that versus the tables in Wonderland program that that uh, that we have, and we still find that that still tends to be a little bit more of a of a better value for us. Right. See, I, I forget that I've got breaks. a panel full of DVC owners this time. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, no, but again, though, I mean, in years past, the dining plan was certainly not was not an option for us. We just we didn't feel like we needed to. Uh, we weren't. We didn't want to feel committed like that cruise ship mentality where we had to eat all the time. You sure. know, we wanted to be able to. You know, we wanted to be able to pick and choose whenever we wanted. And again, with when you're when you're when you're touring with large groups, I mean. It used to be that we were focused on, you know, what rides and what attractions we were going to. Now it's more like, okay, what time are we meeting everybody for lunch or for dinner? Sure. Um, which becomes even more of a destination for us. So, All right. Well, I, I don't want to bog us down too much in, in any one topic because the idea here is to kind of give ourselves an opportunity to talk, you know, in, in broad strokes here about changes, things that have happened since we've been gone. So, um, you know, maybe this is a good opportunity to – talk a little bit more about some of the things um, besides alcohol that have changed in the parks. Um, Magic Kingdom is maybe a good place to start because it seems to me that probably the most significant event over the last year in Magic Kingdom has been um, a change at Be Our Guest Restaurant, which is that 
dinner at Be Our Guest has become a signature dining experience, meaning it's it's now two credits on the dining plan and it's a different menu. It's a prefix menu um, and a, a little bit different uh, sort of approach. Um, anybody have any strong opinions one way or the other about the impact of that change at Be Our Guest? Uh, not yet, but I've got a feeling we do have reservations for it. Um, I, we did have dinner there uh, on our last trip. Um, it was actually a, a last-minute walk-up uh, thing. We just wanted to see because we were really trying hard to get a reservation. We were never able to do it, so we just ended up walking on and, and walking in. It's like I'm on a golf course, but um, we just ended up just walking in, and uh, I felt that the prefix meal uh pricing at least when uh they first started when i was there just about a year ago did help i have to admit um you know i really wasn't quite sold on the food yet you know i had eaten at br guest a couple of times for lunch and i thought the food was good there too and obviously the theming and the atmosphere were really good but but everything else um i really wasn't too sold on it but with the prefix i was able to you know reasonably try a couple things and feel like i had a decent meal with it so um Yeah, so for the most part, I thought it wasn't a bad deal. I mean, I think for me, the thing that's most interesting about it is that I really sort of expected it to maybe move the needle a little bit on how difficult it was to get reservations there. Uh, and it just hasn't. <laughs> um, I don't think it's really had a measurable impact. I think it's it's as hard as ever to get a dinner reservation at Be Our Guest, despite the higher pricing and the the you know, classification as a, a signature dining experience. I'm also wondering, again, just I hate to double back on it, too, but the fact that they're serving alcohol throughout the Magic Kingdom, I'm wondering how how difficult it is to get reservations at like Crystal Palace or the Plaza. Well, except Uh, that you can get a beer at the at the quick service now, too. So. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Alcohol is available pretty much everywhere now in Magic Kingdom. Um, all right. Well, you know, the only other things I had notes on as being changes in Magic Kingdom are are fairly minor, although they're good guest entertainment pieces. Um, you know, I, I think it had already happened when we stopped recording before, but but you know, I don't know that we really talked about it much. Uh, and that was the introduction of the Muppets: Great Moments in American History. That um, I think a lot of people thought was maybe a, a, just a stopgap while they were doing the changeovers at um, the uh, uh, Hall of Presidents, but. Great moments in American history has continued, um, and I think it's probably uh, you know getting a, a higher um, viewership than than actually going into Hall of Presidents these days. Uh, so there's that, and then a few kind of special entertainment pieces that uh, were introduced as part of the Mickey's you know Mickey Mouse 90th uh, birthday celebration. Um, anybody have any um, reaction or, or comment to make a, about? you know, any of those additional show elements in Magic Kingdom? More about are always a good thing. Muppets. Sorry. <laughs> I was just yeah. going to say, I still haven't seen the Muppets. I uh, missed it the last trip, so I'm hoping to get to it this trip, so I'm thankful that it's sticking around. And uh, and I always like to catch Mickey in, you know, different outfits, so I'm looking forward to catching him in his birthday I was going to say birthday suit. <laughs> Be careful, James. <laughs> In his birthday attire. <laughs> I see the tagline for the show now. James can't wait to catch Mickey in his birthday suit. Eh, I walked right into that one. <laughs> 
Uh, Eric, was there something you wanted to add there? I said more Muppets are always a good thing. So uh, I think it's a nice show. uh, And, you know, it's not really costing them anything to, to do this. So might as well keep it around, I guess. Sure. Well, so other than that, you know, the things happening in Magic Kingdom are, are sort of, you know, prep for things coming down the road, right? I mean, the railroad is closed now because, you know, the, the station's got to get moved to make room for uh, the Tron light cycle coaster. We've got a, a some refurbishment happening at uh, Tomorrowland Speedway, similarly, to make some make room for, for Tron. So, you know, I don't know if there's a whole lot to say about these things yet, except that that is going to have such an incredible impact, I think, on helping to balance the park again when when that light cycle attraction opens. Um, because it, it feels to me like for, for a couple of years now, the sort of gravity of the park has been at like one end of Frontierland almost. <laughs> um, and, and getting a major e-ticket attraction opening in uh, Tomorrowland, I think will be huge for helping to balance crowds in, in Magic Kingdom. So another park that has, has got a lot of uh, sort of, you know, beginning stages of making space for major change, as opposed to changes having already happened, is Epcot. Um, the only sort of opening we have for for Epcot at this point is the new signature dining restaurant in Japan. Um, Takumite has gotten its its soft opening um, just this week, and to to you know as far as I'm seeing so far, you know positive early early uh, impressions. Um, but other than that, it's about sort of things in progress in in Epcot. Um, Speaking of things in progress, one of the things that's happening is really making an effort to open up the entry part of Epcot. Um, so anybody want to share your impressions of, uh, you know, Epcot now that about two thirds of the, uh, leave a legacy monuments are gone. Freedom. Oh my God. <laughs> I couldn't stand those things. Uh, I listen, I get a lot of people, Enjoyed having them, especially the folks that had their their impressions placed on that thing. But it just, to me, the, they ruined the entrance to that park when they put them on there. And you know, I am really looking forward to seeing how they're gonna how they're gonna change that up, especially with all the other things that they've got planned for the entrance of the park. But to me, I think it just gives it a much greater flow. Um, you know, in the fact, I think now, especially since we're so used to seeing them there, it almost feels empty. But um, you know, but I think that. With all the changes that they are bringing forward, they're going to need to find a way to to allow allow bigger crowds come through a little bit easier, I guess. Well, and reality is that as as other paths get closed for construction purposes, they're going to need the space. Yeah, yeah. So, although I just heard, I just heard that, uh, you know, I'm sorry to double that way. I just heard that they they got the green light to build the pathway from the Grand Floridian to the Magic Kingdom. That's going to be interesting. Right. That's another one coming um, yeah. that, that has been sort of, uh, you know, anticipated for some time, but, but yeah. never really happened. So it's, it's, yeah. we'll see what comes of that. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, the permit got pulled, so uh, right. that would suggest that it's happening, but uh, I never trust it until it opens. I hear you. I hear you. Um, and speaking uh, of things that are, are almost ready to open, the other big impact on Epcot is Skyliner. Um, we got word, um, oh, I guess about 
two weeks ago now that, uh, and, you know, from the day that we're recording this, that uh, basically the construction folks had handed the keys over to park operations for the Skyliner so that they could begin training cast members on it. Uh, we've got an expected opening of Skyliner sometime in, in August. I don't think we have a specific date just yet, but um, anybody have uh, feelings about sort of where we stand and what we know so far about the Skyliners. I mean, there's a lot that we don't know for sure yet. There's some things that have been speculated, but um, I guess I'll, I'll ask the question a little more broadly. And that is, um, is anybody in particular looking forward to the opening of the Skyliners? I'll say that I am. I always enjoy, you know, a different option, more options in transportation. I think um, as much as everybody's concerned about the, uh, about the air conditioning issue, uh, or lack thereof, um, I think that having those views and that leisurely kind of enjoyable ride will be something that um, that a lot of people will will put up with a little bit of uh, stuffiness. If that be the case, um, I mean, it remains to be seen how hot it will get in these things. But um, but yeah, but I, I think uh, I think it's a great move. I think it's you know it's probably costing them a lot. I know everybody wanted more monorails, but it's probably costing them a hell of a lot less than more monorails would would cost to run around. Right. Well, and and you know it costs a lot less, and it's a little more flexible. Um, I mean, the the ability to kind of redirect the the cars in a couple of different places so that they can they can run different routes. Uh, it's a lot more configurable and changeable than than the monorail route was. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm upset that I won't be staying at any of the resorts where it runs to, so I'll just have to make a side trip to try it out. Right. I mean, I almost changed. I almost tried to change my upcoming reservation from uh, Port Orleans to Pop Century just because, you know, it would be worth more cramped quarters of a value resort. I thought to get the opportunity to to, to ride the Skyliner, but uh, because we're traveling at a time in August just before they open, I didn't want to gamble it. I think that any chance you can get off of a bus, you do it. <laughs> but, uh, but I think, you know, as I'm, I guess I'm looking at it with a sense of guarded optimism. Um, you know, we own uh, DVC at the beach club. So for us, the, you know, the biggest allure, obviously other than the pool was the fact that we can just walk right over through the international gateway. So I'm, I, for one, will be very con- not concerned, but I'm curious to see, how the opening of the Skyliner station is going to affect crowd levels going through there. I certainly think that there will be an effect on park operations, obviously, because now that you've got another way to get to Hollywood studios from Epcot, other than either your feet or the friendship boats, you know, I think a lot of the nighttime activities you might see a little, be a little bit more extended um, due to the fact that, you know, you might be able to catch, uh, well, now illuminations, but whatever the show will be afterwards, then hop on a boat. Yeah, it's not forever. That's it. Um, you know, you can either, you know, once those are over, you can hop on the Skyliner and get over to Hollywood Studios and quick, maybe catch whatever, uh, whether it's Fantasmic or whatever other fireworks show they happen to be going at that time. Right. So, um, so yeah, I think it'll be, you know, I think it'll be interesting. I mean, for me, I, I for one would love to be able to take those to, um, you know, to the resorts that I haven't hit yet. I mean, I, I haven't stayed at Art of Animation and I haven't stayed at Caribbean Beach yet. So, 
you know, it'd be a good way for us to be able to just hop on a skyline and just take a walk around and, you know, um, see what them see what all the, uh, what the, all the, the other resorts have. So, sure. so yeah, it's, it's some guarded optimism, but at the same time, you know, I kind of like my quiet little gateway. So <laughs> I can understand all that. Um, all right. Well, uh, anybody else have, uh, comments or things that they want to add, uh, about the, uh, the Skyliner? I mean, I think it's, it's something we'll have to kind of wait and see a little bit, but I, I don't know. I, I would join the crowd that's excited about it. I, I think it's always fun to have a new form of transportation. Um, I think it's going to give some really fantastic overall views of the property that, you know, people haven't had an opportunity to see before. Um, and the most impressive thing is that, you know, at least based on what I've seen so far, it's going to be quick. Um, it'll, it'll be, you know, a much faster route to both Hollywood studios and Epcot than a bus for folks staying at art of animation and, uh, pop century, especially. And to me, I, I like the fact that Disney's doing something that's going to add some extra value to those value resorts. Yeah, those things haul. I was watching some of those videos, man. What are they running, like, what, 11, 12 miles an hour? That's a pretty, pretty decent clip for those things. And, again, you know, it's rather, rather than taking a nice leisurely you know, boat ride, you know, I'd love to be able to, to you know, book it over to Hollywood Studios, catch something else over there, too. So, yeah, it, uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how that'll affect uh, crowd patterns and, and traffic. But, uh, yeah, I'm kind of hoping it'll be open by the time we go, too. All right. Um, so that that's sort of Epcot. Again, the biggest issues for Epcot is all stuff that's coming. We know major renovation work. We know it's going to be torn up. We know we've got stuff coming in France. We've got stuff coming, you know, the, the new Guardians of the Galaxy coaster. We've got this new, you know, Wonders of Life area is going to be reborn as a, a play pavilion of some kind. Um, you know, all this stuff is coming, but that's down the road. Right now, the state of Epcot really hasn't changed that much. Um, someplace that has changed quite a bit and was really just changing as we took our hiatus was next door at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Um, you know, Toy Story Land was just opening. Um, if you all recall, we were starting our tournament and, and people were giving us trouble because uh, Slinky Dog had gotten a top seed in our tournament, even though nobody could have possibly ridden it yet because it hadn't opened. So, um, it seems that, that, you know, what, what, what our current experience is telling us is that it merited that, uh, that high draft pick, huh? I'd say so. So talk a little bit about your impressions of the, the sort of impact of the opening of Toy Story Land, uh, at Hollywood Studios and, and where it sort of ranks as, uh, additions to to a Walt Disney World Park. I can sum up the impact of Toy Story Land just by pointing out that the day we went for the first time, we walked onto Toy Story Midway Mania <laughs> because <laughs> everybody was online for Slinky Dog. Wow. That no, in and of itself is worth the price of admission. <laughs> <laughs> that was and that was amazing. And that was the first time I had seen uh, Mr. Potato Head I think ever um, the animated Mr. Potato oh, Head yeah, yeah. because he was back and he was in the, like the new queue and you know, we had always 
you know, that was a fast pass only. There was never, we never did standby for that. Right. So getting there and, and seeing that there was nobody on the line, we were confused. We were like, wait, is it not open? Because <laughs> there was nobody there. And then right, we right. walked right in and it was like, it was amazing. Um, but then, but even the line versus Slinky was not, I mean, on the day that we were there is not that bad. I think we, we did, we had a fast pass for the evening and we, in the morning, my son and I waited about 40 minutes. Okay. Which was which wasn't horrible. Right. Um I mean Toy Story Land I mean it's small. I mean that's my one criticism of it is that it's really small and you know, you 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 do especially if you don't have much of a weight and you have a fast pass and you can knock out all three attractions in under an hour probably and you know, in some cases and then you're done. Right. Um but but we did find it was like, you know, it also where a lot of people might treat Hollywood Studios as like a half-day park with all the closures and the construction. I think Toy Story Land had the – it's got that um, that over and over again rideability factor where you, you can go – you're going to want to ride Slinky Dog again, especially if the line is short. You're going to want to – I mean, I was pleasantly surprised by Alien Swirling Saucers. I wasn't – my, my – expectations were very low but I, we, we all enjoyed that ride a lot so and then being able to do two-way story midway mania and then and then good leave we left the park that day and we came back at night because we wanted to see what it looked like at night and at night it's like it just takes it all the all the lights and everything it's just you know you have i tell people now it's like you have to go to toy story land at night it's like if you're you know debating whether to split your day between hollywood studios and another park it's like you have to go you know i'd rather go to toy story land at night if I have the opportunity, because it's that, I think it's that much better at night. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, it, it really has filled out the park again, and getting that open was was huge, especially with so much other construction still going on. Um, you know, Eric, you you've talked about you know the difficulty of getting fast passes and things like that. Do you feel like the the issue that James has with it being so you know relatively small and sort of compact will be? lessened when galaxy's edge opens and the the you know there's some place to go on the other side i feel like uh, galaxy's edge is going to be such a huge draw uh that i but the thing i can't pin down is whether that's going to um make the park any less crowded i think it's just, it's just going to really push that park to maximum capacity all the time and uh how people split between the two sides of the park, I guess is going to be uh, up in the air, but I feel like it's, I think it's going to tip over toward uh, the star Wars side of things. Okay. Um, so, so do you think ultimately it's, uh, it's, it's going to be, I guess, is it going to help balance the park when galaxy's edge opened at all? Or is it just going to be another magnet that means that, the whole park is going to be that much more crowded. I think the whole park is going to be much more crowded, but uh, I feel like the, the bulk of the people are going to be headed toward the star Wars side. Um, you know, with even, you know, like, uh, like was said about uh, like toy story, midway mania had, you know, a wa- was you're able to walk on it now uh, with uh, the new attractions opening. Uh, Galaxy's Edge, I feel, is going to do that to that section of the park to some extent. You know, if there are uh, 
gazillion hour waits for stuff on the Star Wars side, though, people got to go somewhere. So uh, okay. it's a good question, really. So does anybody have a, a different feel about the impact of, of Toy Story Land being open? I mean, clearly this was the idea, right? That they would build something that was fun and attractive and had good capacity so that there would be something to attract people to the other side of the park when Galaxy's Edge opened. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think Toy Story Land is, is it filled a niche that I think Hollywood studios had been missing for quite a while. And that's the, uh, the, I guess the little kid appeal factor, you know what I mean? Sure. A lot of the main, a lot of the blockbuster attractions, rock and roller coaster, twilight zone, Star Tours in Toy Story to a certain extent, even too, you know, they're geared towards a little bit more of an older demographic. So, you know, little kids, they've got a couple of shows. They've got the Muppets, you know, Disney Junior live on stage and, you know, maybe Voyage of the Little Mermaid and a couple of sing-alongs, but nothing really true that can be considered a ride for them, you know. So even when Galaxy's Edge opens up, I have a feeling that Toy Story Land is going to fill um, it's going to fill a need that is just going to be even made greater because not only are you going to have more thrill rides with smugglers running rides in the resistance, you know, you're still going to have to find something for the little ones to do. Um, so I agree. I think it's going to turn Hollywood studios into more than just a half day park. Um, I think it's, it's given it a little bit more of a broader appeal. Um, and I think that's exactly what Disney intended to try to, to attract the whole family, not just say, okay, you know, the little the, the little guys stay with me. The older guys go out and rock a roller coaster five times before I see you again. You know, so right. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that it, it really does sort of serve a purpose of appealing to that that younger segment. I mean, Slinky Dog. You know, one of the things that I think has been best about it is that it's got a reasonable level of thrill without requiring you know a a 42 inch or a 44 inch uh, height requirement, and so. You know, it, it's something that provides broad appeal. The younger kids can ride it. The older ones can still enjoy it. Um, and and Hollywood Studios was desperately needed that. The other, you know, it's interesting to point out that the other new thing that has opened, the other attraction that's a true new attraction at Hollywood Studios is the Lightning McQueen Racing Academy. Um, but my impression, at least, is that you know, maybe we don't even really have um, much of a gauge of what that attraction is or what it's worth to the park because people just haven't even really discovered it yet. Yeah, it's really it's in a really weird spot in the park, and I think it's kind of like it was interesting that they chose to do that. I mean, maybe with future plans, it'll make more sense. You know, that we don't know about. But right now, um, it kind of like adds to the problem that everybody had with, with Hollywood Studios in the past with it's kind of like it was kind of like a hodgepodge and something was over there and then we had something else over here and it, there was no real, you couldn't make sense of it. And so, yeah, so having Lightning McQueen down, you know, like basically Thrill Boulevard where people go to buy Rock and Roller Coaster and Tower of Terror and head down that way, like you, you wouldn't be looking down there for something, you know, to, to take the kids to. Yeah. And it, what makes it so weird to me is that, I mean, like my son who he would ride rock and roller coaster all day, but he will not go near tower of terror. Whatever it is, it triggers something for him. He won't go near it. And 
you know, he's a little older. Kids younger than him, though, or that kind of a reaction to Tower of Terror is much more common. You know, why you would put the attraction that would be most attractive to those kids over in the corner next to the thing that they're scared to even go near, it just seems to me to be, you know, odd, I guess is the word I'll give it. Um I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily poor planning because I think it's just a matter of making use of the available space. But it, 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 I don't know. I, I don't. I guess my concern is that I think that the attraction has some value, but I don't know that it will ever get the attendance it should get because of its location. We're we're gonna go check it out uh, next month when we're there because my son really wants to go to it, and uh, you know he's also very hesitant about Tower of Terror. So I'll have to gauge his reaction as we, <laughs> as we walk down towards it. Yeah. We'll be interested to hear how that goes. That really pretty much covers Hollywood studios. You know, Disney's animal kingdom has maybe had as little change as any park because before we took our hiatus, that's when avatar had opened. And I guess the real question at that point was, okay, you know, we have this massively popular attraction, but is it just the, you know, the new hotness effect or is it really going to have staying power as a major draw? So, uh, James, what do you think of your, uh, your little project there? Uh, I have to say it's doing well. Um, I wish I could say the same for the Navi River journey, but... <laughs> But yeah, but Flight of Passage is still, you know, um, everywhere I see um, in discussion boards and, you know, Facebook, you know, people, are, you know, it's the hot fast pass uh, to get. Everybody's always asking how to, you know, when they can't score pass pass for it, like, you know, how do I get on it? Um, so people are still, you know, it's it's one of those attractions you you plan your, your touring strategy around. Um, and uh, and it's worth, it's worth the wait. It's worth, it, it lived up to the hype. You know, we finally got to ride it last summer and um the kids loved it um you know my handprint is on the wall as you're exiting you can see it up there <laughs> um <laughs> it's actually it's, it's actually the same pretty much the same size as mine so cool. you pass it off as my own did you did you check fingerprints <laughs> no uh so uh, anybody else have thoughts about uh sort of i mean a, a lot of people when when Avatar opened, we're concerned about how it would fit in Animal Kingdom and whether it would really feel like it belonged there in the long term and all of that. Um, it's been there for a while. You know, Roy, what do you think? I, I think it's, uh, I, I was one of those people that, that were a little concerned about how it would fit. Um, and I think it seemed in, I think it's fit in beautifully. Um, I think it also serves a, another, uh, another purpose for Animal Kingdom in that it actually gives uh, some place to go at night. Um, I know, I, you know, for a while there, the Animal Kingdom, just by the just by its very nature of being sort of a, a zoo type of atmosphere, um, you know, you were kind of left to the to normal daytime hours. But now with Avatar and with Pandora, especially at night, is really cool to see. Um, you know, it's given it's given the park a little bit of an extended life as far as a day to day operation goes. Um, you know, I admit I got to admit I was blown away. Um, I was there for the soft opening a couple of years ago and, and, you know, it was everything that I thought it was going to be and more. Um, so yeah, you're right. That was the one fast pass I still can't snag. So, you know, 
I have to really convince 13 other people to get up at 6 a.m. to get to this ride. And <laughs> if I can make that happen, then then uh, I will definitely need a beer at 8 o'clock in the morning. There so, yeah. Um, and, you know, other than that, I mean, here's my only downside about Avatar at Animal Kingdom. It's been great. But the other things that they've tried to do at Animal Kingdom to help deal with the additional crowds, I feel like they've all kind of just missed. You know, um, we got a redo of the the bird show, and I still don't think it's catching on. It's fantastic. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Bird show is great. I, I love I love the bird show. I, I think it's a great uh, great little way to spend a little time, learn some stuff. Um, the new theming uh, with Up is at least uh, it brings in another Disney property. So for folks who like to see the intellectual property spread around, you got that. But uh, I think it's it's it was a hidden gem. I think before, and I don't think it's uh, dropped out of that category. So you don't you don't feel like the up overlay is is forced or I mean because that's always been the problem with shows at Animal Kingdom or show scenes at Animal Kingdom is that at times it feels like the stories just don't fit they're not organic I mean the whole you know the the whole saga of of including and then excluding the little red story in in Kilimanjaro Safari you know it's a similar situation. I don't know that it added to the attraction. Do you feel like the the up storyline in in the bird show elevates it, or is it just kind of shoehorned in? I mean, up did feature a very large bird, right? And you can also <laughs> see that bird out in the park now, right? So, uh, okay, but there's the, the ironic part about it, right? The best part of of including you know bringing up in for the bird show is the bird that's not real and alive. Yes, that's true. However, I think that uh, I, I like the way they, that they've used uh, up for the wilderness explorers yes. around the park. Agreed. So I think that this is just another uh, spot to to put it in, and uh, it it with those um, sort of check ins all around the park for the wilderness explorers. Um, and uh, with the, the the large bird running around, um, I, I think that it's integrated fairly well with the park. All right. Well, that's that's a good point. You know, as part of the bigger context, it really does sort of you know provide a linchpin, I guess, for for the whole overall wilderness explorer piece. Um, you know, it seems like the other things that have changed at, at Animal Kingdom have either been treading water or sort of steps back, right? I mean, it feels like, so Rafiki's Planet Watch sort of closed. Now it's open. Maybe it looks like seasonally, um, you know, still no change in the status of the Yeti. He's still disco dancing in uh, Expedition Everest. So that <laughs> that's still there. Um, I, I don't know. What, what do we think? Is, is there... Which direction, I guess, is here's the, the way I would ask it. Which direction do you feel like Animal Kingdom theme park is trending at this stage, right? Because, you know, Avatar was supposed to be the thing that kind of kicked it forward. So was that effective? And is it going to keep it 
in a a net positive when there's Star Wars to grab people's attention on the other side of the park now. Well, I think that any anybody who you know watches the the history of the Animal Kingdom and Disney in general, I mean, there was there was talk when the when the park first opened of creating more of a uh, kind of a land with for I guess fantasy creatures. Right, so right. I guess the, the the beastly kingdom that was the, never built. Right, right. So I think Pandora sort of opened that gate a little bit. Um, and to be honest with you, you can only do so much with with what nature has given us already, right? So, I mean, Kilimanjaro Safaris is still going to be a top draw. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, the bird, the bird, you know, the bird show, I think, you know, even though I haven't seen it yet because my wife is definitely afraid of birds, um, uh, I still think, you know, there's still a lot of things you can do with that. But opening up that, that fantasy scene a little bit, I think, I think you're going to start to see it progress a little bit more. I hope it doesn't overshadow the, you know, the animals, you know, going forward. But right. um, I, I'm not sure, you know, what kind of, you know, what other IPs out that that Disney has out there that could that could um, focus in on that. I mean, I was always kind of kind of curious because you know Disney Nature has such wonderful movies. You know, all the all the movies that they've put out, you know, regarding the oceans, you know, monkeys and, and everything else. You know, I was wondering if there was any way they could tie that into to the animal kingdom and maybe expand upon it that way. But I, I just don't know. But I think uh, I honestly think that you're going to start to see more and more, not necessarily another Pandora type of thing, but it definitely opens up the mind a little bit and the imagination to, to develop the animal kingdom to something a little bit more fantastic, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Sure. All right. Well, so just a, a few pieces sort of outside of of parks that I wanted to touch on real quickly that were pretty significant changes that happened while we were away. Um, we had a, a couple of hotel announcements and, and you know, things happen. So um, I think we'll hold on much more discussion of, of Riviera because it's not going to open for another, you know, few months here. It's not supposed to open until December. But we did get just this week as we're recording the uh, opening of Grand Destino Tower at uh, Coronado Springs Resort. Um, anybody have a quick reaction to the brand new Grand Destino Tower? Looks gorgeous. I gotta admit, I mean, the fact that that kind of a tower is in a moderate resort is it's going to be a huge draw. I know that Coronado is supposed to be the convention type of hotel and uh, the convention type of resort. I mean, and Grand Destino, I think, just makes it that much more attractive. Um, it's going to have an, a killer view of fireworks shows. I mean, I think they hit a home run there. I really do. Yeah, to me, that's the coolest thing is that you've got this grandest, you know, tower in a moderate resort that yeah. has a view of fireworks at like all of the parks <laughs> from that one tower. Right. And I think it also effectively, it effectively almost serves two different types of populations. I mean, with Coronado being the quote unquote convention resort, um, you know, having the Grand Destino Tower gives those conventions one building to go to, and that's it. So they can do everything that they need to do. They can stay in that building. They can run their shows in that building. All those things. Instead of you know having to walk throughout the entire resort to get from A to B, it gives them that one that one central location. 
And then as far as the rest of the, the resort goes, that can still be used as a, as a typical Disney resort. Families can, you know, get interspersed all throughout the, the resort property, really enjoy it. The pool there is really, really nice. Um, and not feel as if they're, not feel as if they're stuck in the middle of a business meeting as people are walking by, you know, in, in you know dress clothes or whatever the case may be, or walking around with laptop computers. Right. They can still feel like they're on vacation. Right, because you, when you're in the casitas now, you're not going to feel quite the same impact of the conventioneers as you would when you were next door to them. Right. So the other big change uh, in resort restaurants is that what was Artist Point, a signature restaurant at at Wilderness Lodge sort of transformed and became a, a Snow White character meal. Yeah, I, I mean, on one hand, I I was so disappointed to hear that. And then strangely excited about the fact of having you know, a Seven Dwarfs character meal. But it was bittersweet because we had had just not that long ago, like my wife and I had had like a, you know, a date night where we went and ate at Artist Point. And it was, and we had such a great meal and it was a, such a great night and like you know we thought you know hey we're gonna do this again we'll find a way to you know work it out so we can do this again and we can do the exact same thing but you know and that's not gonna fly anymore but i can understand why because when we were there we were one of you know maybe half a dozen tables you know uh of people eating at a what should be a busy dinner period right right and yeah, you know, so it just it just wasn't getting you know they had this great restaurant it just wasn't getting the draw so they had to do something and like I said you put characters somewhere and people you know families like mine are gonna are gonna eventually go there so right so Roy what do you think is it a, a net positive or a net negative to trade a signature dining restaurant in Artist Point for a signature character meal uh, instead. I think it's I think it's a net positive. Um, you know, I, like you said, I mean, we did the same thing. We had a we had a date night at Artist Point, and we really did enjoy the meal. But my wife is a huge Snow White fan, and you know, I think especially with those types of characters, it's a very um, it's kind of a rare experience or a rare uh, event to actually meet the, the evil queen. You know what I mean? So, um, so from in that regard, you know, anybody who's like really into meeting the characters, that that's a big thing. Um, I think that anytime, like you said, anytime you get to meet the characters, I think it's it's a it's a positive uh, it's a positive change. Um, you know, it's a shame that Artist Point couldn't really gain the traction that that I think it um, it deserved. But you know, I think with what you what you got with Whispering Canyon being such a huge draw for families, and then with Geyser Point right outside too, I think Artist Point is really going to struggle to get you know that other that one niche that those two places wouldn't be able to serve on. Forgot also about Roaring Fork, so. I think this just adds to the allure of adding one more option. Uh, you know, Wilderness Lodge is fast becoming you know, a pretty pretty popular destination from a dining standpoint because of all the options. Like I said, between Whispering Canyon, uh, Geyser Point outside, which is absolutely beautiful, and now you've got a character experience there. I think it's it's a huge it's a huge draw for the Wilderness Lodge. Well, Eric, I seem to remember you being a bit of a fan of Artist Point. So I don't know, is it a net positive for you? Uh, not for me, I don't think. Uh, I I will miss the the menu that they had at Artist Point. Uh, the new one just doesn't speak to me. But that's not the big draw there. It doesn't seem like it's more the the characters themselves. Um, I think for uh, runners who are doing the Dopey Challenge, that you know this is another chance to get a picture with Dopey at dinner. Good point. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, to me, I think the thing I miss the most is I loved the bar menu at Artist Point. Um, it was a really great late night, grab something to eat kind of place. Um, and I'll miss it because um, they don't really do the same thing now that it's a, a character meal. But um, other than that, I mean, I get it. One of the things about Artist Point is, although I think we had people, you know, who who talked about it on the show, who liked it a lot, it, it was hit and miss. You know, it seemed to have its peaks and valleys. And, and there are so many restaurants that are so good at Walt Disney World these days. If it's going to be inconsistent, it's not going to last. And, you know, this is what happens. Sure, absolutely. And I think the uh, what I what I remember about it was uh, service being in, inconsistent. Uh, I remember being rushed through a couple of meals that uh, um, probably you shouldn't be out of a signature restaurant in yeah you know thirty five minutes. Good point. Um, and we also on the restaurant front had several new restaurant experiences open in Disney Springs. Is that really develops and becomes even more of a destination. Um, the three, I think that we highlighted that I think all either opened or kind of hit the mainstream while we were away were, um, the Edison, which I'm pretty sure had opened, but you know, I don't think had really gotten the attention yet. Um, then shortly after the Edison opened, it was Wine Bar George, and more recently, um, Haleo, which is the Jose Andres restaurant that opened in Disney Springs. And um, Eric, I'll let you get us started. You know, of those three, maybe which one do you think has the the potential to have the biggest long term impact on Disney Springs? I feel like it's going to be Haleo, just because uh, you've got a. A name chef. This is uh, I've had. I haven't eaten at this Haleo yet, but I've eaten at several Haleos in the greater DC area. Um, it's fantastic food. It's the the tapas menu that uh, you. It's great for sharing with uh, with a group of people. So if you got you know big families coming in, you can get a little bit of a lot of things and uh, and kind of eat your way around the menu uh, without having to you know, make a big, heavy investment in, in one entree. Um, and it, like I said, it's, uh, with the name chef like that, just like, you know, Art Smith's homecoming, uh, you're really building up, uh, a community of, uh, these really top level chefs who are bringing their, uh, their vision to Disney Springs. Sure. Uh, how about you, James? Which which of those do you think is going to have the the biggest long term impact on Disney Springs? Uh, it's tough to say. I, I hope it's the Edison because I think what what that the Edison brings uh, a bit of character. I mean, you know, you got a lot of restaurants that are just about or that are about the food, but I think what I love about Disney, the way Disney Springs is turning out now is that you've got a bunch of places that that have they're a little quirky and they've got some character and they've got some, you know, or some flair. And, and I hope that, that those types of places, you know, are, are successful and, and, and stick around because I think it makes, it just makes it more fun. How about you, Roy, which of those three do you think is going to have the biggest long-term impact? Yeah, I kind of think the Edison will, um, you know, nothing, not to take away from Haleo or Art Smith, which is one of my favorites around there too. Um, I just think that, Disney Springs has become such a destination for for foodies that um, 
you know, I think it needs a little bit more of a of a diversion as well. You know, someone may not necessarily be into the, may not be into the that gourmet, um, you know, that gourmet thing. But you know, place like the Edison, which I, I have been to, um, my wife and I actually went there um, for a drink uh, one night, and and I gotta admit, I was uh, <laughs> I wasn't prepared for what I saw. Uh, we went there like around, I think we got there like around maybe 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, the first thing that I, that should have tipped me off was that, you know, they were carting me at the door and it's like, okay. And then when I went in there, you know, they had a burlesque show going on. So my wife kind of looked at me and said, are we still in Disney? And yeah. I said, I certainly hope so. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's just it, right? It, it, it is, yeah. a, it is a place that, that you do need to be prepared for the fact that it shifts gears right. at about nine o'clock. Um, yeah. and, and it's not, you know. Kids are not welcome after nine o'clock. Right. I mean, I was ready for, you know, the whole steampunk type of vibe was something I was really interested in. I really enjoyed it. And, and you know, the times that we did go in during the daytime, um, it, they didn't really portray that all that much, which was even better because they kind of gave that uh, almost like that, uh, you know, roaring 20s type of feel. Right. You know, but like I, but I tell you, like, you know, late at night, man, that place is a, is a completely different animal. And, and you know, it, I'm not saying that that I'm not here to debate whether or not that belongs in a place like Disney, but it certainly is a different form of entertainment. Let's put it that way. Right. Well, yeah, and it, it's going to be interesting. I mean, we've got a dinner reservation there uh, the for the first night, our, our rival night, um, which you know a little earlier so the kids can come, um, and, <laughs> and we'll see how it goes because I'm looking forward to checking it out because I've heard such good things. Um, you know, Haleo was tempting, um, but my wife doesn't eat pork, and so that eliminated like two thirds of the Haleo menu. It felt like. <laughs> yeah, the food was okay at the Edison. I'm not gonna lie, it wasn't you know it wasn't as good obviously as Haleo or Homecoming, but definitely served definitely definitely had some. The dessert was much better. I have to admit the desserts here were kind of freaky. Uh, I forget what my wife ordered, but it came in this huge, this huge glass that uh, had all kinds of different types of ice cream and, and goodness. And to this day, maybe it was just the margaritas talking to me, but it <laughs> seems like it was really good at the time. So, <laughs> all right. All right. Well, you know, we've reached that time where we're going to be wrapping things up here. So I wanted to go and just go around the circle here one last time and ask each of you, which you know, we talked about a whole range of topics here. Which one of those topics do you think is the single most significant thing that happened at Walt Disney World while we were away? Uh, and uh, Roy, I'll go ahead and let you get us started. Which was the single most significant thing that happened at Walt Disney World while we were away? Uh, I think we have to lean towards the Skyliner. Uh, I think it's definitely going to make the it's going to make two parks that much more accessible to a couple of the resorts. I think it's going to open up a lot of those resorts to to, to more traffic. And make them more of a destination place for people who aren't necessarily staying there. You know, for example, somebody who's staying at either the Boardwalk or the Yacht and Beach Club can hop on the Skyliner, head over to have dinner over at the Caribbean Beach at Sebastian's, or hang out at the Banana Cabana. So I think it's just going to open up that part of the resort that much more. All right. Uh, so Roy says it's the Skyliners. Uh, what do you think? Is is he right, Eric? It's certainly. Uh, yeah, that's going to make a, a huge change. I think it's, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to agree. Yes. I think that, uh, having that other transportation option is going to be really transformative, especially for some of these resorts that otherwise don't have that, uh, sort of transportation draw that the deluxe resorts have Delu deluxe resorts often have like another way to get places, get to a park like boats or, um, 
or walking, but uh, this lets some uh, less uh, expensive resorts get into the game. Okay, fair enough. All right, so there are two fellow panelists here who say the Skyliner is the biggest impact uh, that, you know, the thing with the biggest impact that happened while we were away uh, here at the show. Uh, James, you're going to get run over by this uh, Skyliner? <laughs> I, you know, I, as much as I'm looking forward to taking a ride on it, I, 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 I'm not seeing it as a, as a, such a big impact. So I'm kind of see, like, I think the biggest thing that's happened in the past you know, for me, it was Toy Story Land, and I think that I don't know if that counts because it kind sure of it does, yeah. But like, but Toy Story Land opening was. Like it was a game changer for Hollywood studios with everything. It kind of like took took that park, which was where everything was closing, and it, it was just everybody was just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting for Galaxy's Edge. Eventually, you know, it was going to come. But like Toy Story Land just breathed a lot of new life into that park, and it gave it something marketable, and you know, it, it became a draw. It became one like like we were talking about, you know, uh, Flight of Passage, um, and. Animal Kingdom, you know, Slinky Dog Dash is it's like it's that fast pass that you gotta have, um, and it just it just gave it, you know, it gave Disney World something that it, you know, that extra draw. It gave, you know, my family something to look forward to, like in, in addition to everything else. And I think that was the biggest game changer for us. All right. Well, I'm gonna say you're all wrong because the biggest game changer is the early morning and late night hard ticket events. Um, I know that that it seems maybe like there are there a sidelight, but I think that they have the potential here to have a long term significant impact, both in the way that guests experience the parks and in the business that Disney does in the parks. Um, I think we're going to start seeing the those kinds of events become uh, things that people plan around, and that it will have a bigger and bigger impact on the way that people experience Walt Disney world that, you know, you, you may have your four park days, but you'll have your four park days and whichever park is that one park that is the one that is your must do for that trip. You're, you're going to make the investment in the hard ticket event because you're going to guarantee yourself access to those attractions that are, you know, otherwise at times overwhelmed and uh, it, it has the potential to change Every trip. Um, so I, I, I just really think that, that they're a game changer um, in, in organizing yourself for Walt Disney World in a lot of ways. Um, well, you know, you've heard our thoughts about things that happened over the last year while we've been on our little hiatus. We'd love to hear your thoughts. What do you think the most significant impact uh, over the last year and what thing caused that that biggest impact who on the panel was right or hey maybe it was none of us let us know about it you can email us at podcast at disdads.com visit our blog disdads.com tweet us at disdads podcast on twitter and we're even on facebook at facebook.com slash disdads podcast uh, if you've got an extra minute We'd really appreciate a review that's especially important right now as we're just coming back from being away for a while. Um, iTunes is going to have kind of forgotten about us and uh, is going to not be letting other folks know that the show is back. The best way to help other folks find out that the show is back is to tell them. And you can do that by leaving us a review uh, either at iTunes uh, or I guess Apple Podcasts. 
Is, is the name that's uh, being used more uh, in the years since we've been gone. Uh, Stitcher Radio, we're there. We're also on Google Play. In any case, a review anywhere would be a big help. Until next time, I've been Aaron Ripmaster with Eric Anderson. Bye, folks. James Cameron. Good night, everybody. Wake me up in another year. <laughs> and Roy David. Have a good night, everybody. Our outro music is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod. Kevin licenses his song under Creative Commons by Attribution. Here's your attribution, Kevin. Thanks. All right. Great job, guys. Thanks for uh, getting us rolling. The first one back. Absolutely. Feels good to be back. Thanks, Aaron. Not too rusty. Yeah, not too bad. <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad.